You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey everybody, two quick notes before we get to the show. The first segment of this episode was recorded before the current economic maelstrom, so take that into account when we touch on finances and investing. Second, since at the time the name change for the podcast hadn't occurred yet, don't be surprised by this. Hey, this is Nick. And this is Court. This is Travis Shakespeare. You're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Have you ever looked around and no one resembles you? There's a luxury in being part of the majority. It became abundantly clear to me when Financial Mechanic asked me about my recommended reading list on my blog. To my great embarrassment, it was made up of all middle-aged, Caucasian, heterosexual males. Hmm, I thought. I had thrown the list haphazardly together ages ago when I had started writing my blog. Since then, especially while making a podcast, I have talked with just about everyone who I could who was interested in personal finance. Black and white, young and old, straight and gay. List a dichotomy. Any dichotomy. But the fact remained. Entering the personal finance community, there was a bevy of content producers who looked, sounded, and maybe even acted just like me. And it was a luxury. It is a luxury. But what if you are not a middle-aged, Caucasian, heterosexual male? What if you are a gay man or a lesbian couple who wants to start a family? How would it feel to try to become a part of the personal finance community to you? And while we're on the subject of fitting in, many of us are hoping to become freelancers, small business people, and consultants. And what's even harder than getting that big job or account? It's getting paid for it once the work is done. That's why we're giving a big thanks to Joust for supporting Earn and Invest. Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. PayArmor, Joust's invoice payment guarantee product, supports a 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com slash earnpod and enter the promo code WUN and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash E-A-R-N-P-O-D. Travis Shakespeare is the director and executive producer of the documentary Playing With Fire, which was featured in the New York Times, USA Today, and The Guardian. Released in 2019, Playing With Fire showcases what has been dubbed a radical subculture known as FIRE, financial independence, retire early, that embraces frugality and financial optimization to achieve financial independence. Travis, welcome to the What's Up Next podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to have you. We met briefly at FinCon this year, and I didn't feel like I got enough time to talk to you. So I'm really happy to have you here today on the podcast. Happy you invited me. Thank you. Nick and Court are the creative pair behind the blog Modern Finally, where they hope to help educate and inspire us to reach our financial and lifestyle goals by sharing their experiences with family, work, and financial independence. Nick and Court, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having us on. Totally excited to have you here. I think I interacted with you guys first on Instagram. Is that right? Yes. That's the majority of where most people can find us besides our blog. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I have to admit, being well planted into my 40s, I still find Instagram fairly confusing. Oh, so do we. Don't worry. (laughs) Okay. So it's not just me? No. (laughs) All right. Well, I want to get to our conversation a little bit. And Travis, I'm going to start with you. Almost everyone who discovers personal finance and definitely financial independence has some sort of awakening or another that spurs them into action. 
What was it for you? How did you discover financial independence? I discovered it when my father died when I turned 40 years old, and I was still deeply in debt. I had $40,000 in student loan debt at 9% interest. I had some credit card debt at your average, you know, 25% interest or whatever. And my father was a school teacher, so not a very wealthy man, but managed to put aside about $150,000 in the Vanguard Star Fund in addition to his pension. The pension went to my mom and the Vanguard Star Fund went to me and my sister. So I inherited $75,000, which enabled me to pay off all of my outstanding debt. And I ran a couple of retirement calculators with the remaining $22,000 in cash that I had and realized that I was going to be eating cat food in my old age, (laughs) almost certainly if I didn't get something going on. (laughs) So I took a deep dive, tried to figure out how to educate myself. I was completely financially illiterate. I was very unlike the core group of fire advocates. Slowly but surely, I came across Mr. Money Mustache and Early Retirement Extreme, and the rest is history. Was there a temptation to go on a bender and just spend all that money? I mean, it sounds like up to that point, you hadn't been as financially savvy. I don't really think there was a temptation because I was pursuing an acting career as a young man, and I did it for close to 20 years. But what I hoped for was to hit it big in Hollywood and to become a multimillionaire overnight so that I wouldn't have to worry about money. But as that dream sort of receded and I realized that that probably wasn't going to happen, I became much more sober, I would say, about money. So by the time I did get that extra surplus of cash, I think at that point I was more like, how can I make this grow for myself as opposed to what can I buy? And Cord, who discovered financial independence first? Was it you or Nick? It was me. Back in 2009, I finished my master's degree and I ended up with $65,000 of student loan debt to my name. And I didn't really know a thing about investing per se, but I was very debt adverse and I made it a mission to pay off that student loan debt ASAP. Within two and a half years after starting my first quote unquote, big girl job. I murdered that debt. And after that is when I had first discovered the FIRE movement through the Mr. Money Mustache blog. And that was around the time when Nick and I started dating. Were there any resources you used while you were quote unquote murdering the debt? Or was that something really the financial independence information and Mr. Money Mustache, et cetera, you found kind of after you were already on that path? That was after killing off the debt. So I've seen my family go through a lot of money mistakes, and that made me realize that I wanted to be in control of money versus the other way around. So just seeing some mistakes that my parents had made in my past made me never want to have debt to my name. So that's where the influence to kill off that debt came from. And then it was through a coworker of mine in 2012, I believe, when I first discovered the Mr. Money Mustache website, and then I you know, went through that whole rabbit hole of reading all different blogs and getting well accustomed to the FI movement. But for us, really, it was more about traveling and optimizing traveling and doing as much traveling as we could. And we got into travel hacking. And that's where all of our stuff kind of started. And just financial independence was kind of morphed into that and intertwined together with our passion for travel. Nick, there are stories that abound about spouses and significant others complaining about their loved one discovering financial independence and pursuing a lifestyle that might not be as comfortable for them. Were you on board right away? Yes, but kind of in my own way. I didn't really know anything about financial independence. 
I actually remember going for a walk with Court in the neighborhood that she was living in and I was still going to school. And she said, started telling me about this Mr. Money Mustache blog. I was like, yeah, that sounds great. I don't even have a real job yet, but like, that sounds like an awesome thing that I don't ever have to work again. It was never a discussion of like, let's cut down on our spending or any negative way of talking about it. I mean, I was already living like a college student because I actually was actively a college student and I didn't have an income. Travel was what I liked to do. And I wasn't about brand name, anything. And that's just how I was already. So there's nothing really to get on board with other than just to maybe read some of the blog that she kept telling me about. So fears of deprivation weren't huge for you. It didn't sound like anything was going to be taken away. Exactly. If anything, I was about to get my first job and then I was already going to have more money than I had at the moment. So it was just a different way of thinking about starting off spending your money. And you hear about a lot of people who get their first job and then like you get your first paycheck and you spend it all because it's exciting, right? But she was already telling me about financial independence and the options that could come with it and how much travel we could do and how many more things we could accomplish in life. I never had the desire to spend that first. You know, I never went down that path, I guess. Travis, I want to jump to the Playing With Fire movie. It documents the all-American couple, Scott and Taylor, and their adorable daughter as they traverse the first steps of financial freedom. I was wondering, as you were making this movie, how much did you see yourself in this documentary? And more importantly, what didn't you see that reflected you personally? That sounds like a leading question, Doc. (laughs) It is, of course. I saw a a white uh, person who has an above average salary now. I didn't when I started out. Struggling a bit with what is meaningful, what is valuable in life? Where does money intersect with that? Of course, what I didn't see was that they were a straight hetero couple with a kid. It's funny, I, I don't think about it a lot, but since you asked me to do this podcast, I was thinking about it. And I've done a lot of studying and a lot of research on the people in the fire movement. I've lurked on all the boards. I've read a lot of people's stories in preparation for making the film. And overwhelmingly, it's a straight married with children kind of community, which is an interesting attribute just in and of itself in terms of value structure. I've often felt, I don't know if left out is the right word. I mean, it's kind of a hard thing to determine after living a lifetime of being a gay man in a straight culture. But let me put it this way. Whenever I go into the taxation part of the blogs, everything's always married with children. So I'm always having to take the children and the spouse out of the equation and try to do the math back, you know, back all that stuff out. I didn't see myself in the traditional nuclear family component of it. And I think importantly, what I did see in Scott and Taylor that I see in myself is grappling with what is the meaning of life? What is the point of us being in a really rich society at a point in human history where we have more privilege, especially as Americans or North Americans, than has ever happened in all human history as average people. And yet we're still sort of unhappy and unfulfilled and we don't quite know what this all means. And I think that's a big part of what the fire movement grapples with in general. It's all under the guise of money and personal finance. It's really about what is the meaning of life? I've always asked that question and asked it again in the documentary. 
Court, when I listened to Travis talk about looking at the blogs and the tax information and thinking about what it meant to him as a gay male, as opposed to the typical husband, wife, and kids that he was seeing in the blog, I think a lot about what I said in the introduction. I tend to find communities of people who look and sound like me. Court, when you discovered financial independence, did you find anyone that you could relate to on that level that felt and sounded like you? The only major big blogger I'd say out there that I really relate to is Liz from Frugal Woods. I think her and I, we see eye to eye on a lot of different things, you know, understanding that the joy is in less. It's about being in tune with nature. They have a family. Now, of course, that's a hetero couple with two girls. At the beginning, we hadn't come across anyone else who was part of the LGBTQ community within the FI community. Now, since we've started our Instagram and started our blog in the last year, we have been able to connect with quite a few members of both the FI community and the LGBTQ community, which has been amazing. We've met people from Canada, from the US, from Australia, from all over. And knowing that, you know, this community is larger than what you see from like the main bloggers who for me, like you said, tend to be 40 some odd white males in the tech industry, right? That That's kind of like the starters of the bigger five movement came from people of that stereotype. And I think it's really expanded in, in all different ways to many different types of communities out there. And I think it, that's just one of the beauties of technology is seeing how diversified we really are. Nick, as Court was saying, when you guys first came to this financial independence, you weren't seeing people who were lesbian females blogging, interacting, part of the financial independence community. Yet It seems to me you were very thoughtful about branding and naming your blog. So Modern Family along with how you created what I would call your avatar, certainly suggests that you're two lesbians. I mean, this was part of your story (laughs) that you put out there from the beginning. Were you very thoughtful about how you named the blog and how you presented yourself in this community? Because it must have felt like you were the only ones, I would imagine, at that point. Court is the one that is on Instagram. I have my personal Instagram, but I don't do the modern family Instagram at all. So I wasn't interacting with any of the LGBT people that she was meeting. For me, there was no LGBT community in financial independence. And I'm still not entirely sure that as a community, it would be much different reaching financial independence as a couple or a single person just because you happen to be part of the LGBT community. For me personally, I don't know if I was really worried about representing that for somebody else, I guess. It's always nice to have a role model that is similar to you, which we didn't have in all the blogs that Court was reading and telling me about, (laughs) because she's definitely more into the reading of the blogs and all the financial part of everything. But I guess like in terms of creativity, and we were mindful about being open about who we are and open about our family and I'm a very private person, so that was a little bit hard for me. But just the name of it even was just like something catchy, I guess. And we weren't out to be the representatives of the lesbian FI community by any means. We had a story that people seemed interested in, and then we wanted to make it interesting for them to come to our website and be a name that they remembered, I guess. 
Court, talk about that a little bit more. The name of the blog, did you think that would say anything about your sexual orientation or the pictures, et cetera? Or it just wasn't, wasn't a thought process. It definitely was. I mean, it's a spin on the show Modern Family. And we basically took out the F.A. in family and flipped it with F.I., right? Because we've reached F.I. And we are a family. And we're modern in the sense that we are a lesbian family. So there was definitely purpose behind the name of it. We actually like just kind of stumbled into creating the blog. It wasn't anything that we had been really planning for a long time. We just thought, hey, let's try it out. And our Instagram account beforehand was fire two moms, one babe. And that was what we were going with. And then after a certain point, I'm just like, you know, I think we were looking to expand our family. So two moms, one babe wouldn't really fit our long-term goals. So we were trying to come up with a different name. And it is to show that, again, this FI community is very diverse. They're made up of modern families. You know, it's not just a one size fits all, you know, cookie cutter description of who is within the FI space. So we're hoping that name captures different families because I think a lot of people within the FI space are either single or dual income, no kids. There's a lot of people in that category. So we wanted to showcase that there are families that are able to reach FI as well. Travis, I feel like Nick and Court's brand makes it pretty clear that they're a lesbian couple. You, on the other hand, I wonder if most people in the financial independence community know you're gay, and does it even matter? I haven't hidden it at all. Uh, Most people don't ask. I work in a very straight world. I have for many, many years. Uh, My bread and butter is making um, extreme survival shows in places like Alaska. I've spent many months on the oil rigs of West Texas. I've made a life of fitting in. Some people know I'm gay right away. Some people have no idea. I don't think it really matters per se, no. I'm interested in this idea of making a life of fitting in. Did you feel like you had to do the same thing when you started getting interested in personal finance and financial independence? And is that even a conscious thing you do? Or is it something you kind of did all those years? That's a big question. The reason why that's a big question is because Court and Nick are very lucky in that they're young and they're able to have a family and raise children as an open lesbian couple. You know, I'm 52 years old and we forget that only 40 years ago, being gay or lesbian or queer was just not even an acceptable thing. I mean, to see a presidential candidate who's openly gay, that blows my mind. That never even crossed my mind that that would ever happen in my lifetime. The first time I had a partner, Colorado openly voted to deny all gay and lesbian and queer people civil rights. It was an open forum, you know, referendum. So fitting in was part of my way of getting through life early on and trying to find a way to deal with the core issues of shame and fear and things like that that came with being a young gay kid. It's now an ingrained thing. I'm not closeted by any stretch. Um, I'm open at work. I have a wonderful partner. I'm open with my family. I just got to go meet my partner's new nephew down in Texas in a little tiny town. His mom threw the baby in my arms and I caught a cold from him immediately, probably still here, which makes me happy that I don't have children myself. They're little germ incubators. But yeah, I mean, fitting in, geez, I'd love to hear what you guys have to say, Court and Nick, on that, because 
You're a different generation. How old are you guys? Oh, I'm 33. 31. Yeah, so you guys are millennials. <laughs> Has fitting in been a part of your lives? Has that been a central thing as young women? Yeah. I mean, I'll tackle this first, Nick. I think for me, well, both of us probably, we both grew up playing hockey, ice hockey, which for whatever reason tends to have a larger percentage of lesbian participants than some other sports. I mean, there are other sports too, like softball and basketball too, in the women's sports tend to have, for whatever reason, a significant amount of lesbian participants. Stereotypically, they do. That's not to say the majority is. (laughs) It just tends to be a stereotype that goes along with it, right? Because lesbian hockey players are badass. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so I think part of that has helped. You know, we've never once felt alone in the process. There's always been someone that we knew that was a lesbian, someone older than me, for example, who was on my team that I knew was a lesbian. I didn't know that I was at the time, but when I did figure that out, it made me feel a little better about me figuring out who I am and knowing that people may likely judge me, but I know I have a group of people who will accept me. I knew I had that. So I think that likely helped in my situation. But when I first had my first ex-girlfriend a ways away, you know, I was scared to death. I was like, what is happening? What am I doing? You know, I just kissed a girl. What's going on? You know, it was scary. And then even telling my parents about Nick and coming out to them beforehand was really scary. And I knew like I grew up in a pretty liberal household. I knew, you know, everything was going to be fine. But just having that conversation of, hey, mom and dad, like I'm a lesbian or hey, mom and dad, I like girls. How are they going to react? You know, what are they going to say? My mom ended up wanting to talk to me for three hours about all my past relationships. So it was like totally different than how I thought it was going to be. But, you know, I think living in this day and age, like where we are now in our thirties, it's way more accepting. Like Nick and I were commenting all the time of all the same sex families that we're meeting in our town, even, you know, let alone globally. Like it's just becoming so much more quote unquote normal to see more people of the same sex marriages. It's really liberating to see that, you know, we don't ever have to feel like we need to explain ourselves to people in public. No one's really glaring at us because our daughter's holding hands with two females. You know, we don't really feel like outsiders, which I think is really a blessing. Like you said, Travis, like 40 years ago, you couldn't imagine that happening, right? And now we can't compare to that because we weren't there, you know, experiencing that 40 years ago. But I know we are different and we're, you know, and we embrace that. Like, and we embrace that for the FI side thing too. Like being part of the FI community means you're different from society. All of that plays a role into how we got to where we are today. Nick, I want to approach this from another angle, but it really sounds very familiar to what Court just said. Court was just recently featured in a Forbes article, and I was looking through my Facebook feed and on the Slow FI Facebook group. I'm going to read you a quote. Someone read that article and they commented, my friend and I, both part of the LGBT community, were just talking about this same point, how we'd already lived a non-traditional life given the circumstances we come from. So living a non-conventional financial life isn't necessarily such a stretch. Good job. And I'm wondering, Nick, do you resonate with that? Is there something about this non-conventional financial independence path you've taken that's made easier by the fact that 
maybe as Travis was saying, people would look at your personal path as non-traditional? So as Court has said in previous podcasts and in our blog and stuff, we're not open with our families about our financial lives. Like she said, like having the conversation about being gay with your parents is really difficult to just, you know, be like, sit down, I have something I have to tell you, or like, it can be really awkward and uncomfortable. I feel like we've done that once now. And yes, because we have that experience, we feel like you'd think maybe it'd be easier for us to have another sit down talk with our parents, but it's, it's almost like they're two very taboo subjects and money is almost even more taboo than your sexuality these days because of the way that society works, right? Like having a good job and doesn't matter what your sexual orientation is, but like a good job, making lots of money, keeping up with the Joneses is all very important, right? The way I was raised, I guess, was very middle-class. Like I lived in a very small town. There was no gay, lesbian, anything that was anybody that was out anyways that I knew of coming out to my parents was very difficult. Like it wasn't accepted with open arms. Now that my grandma knows and everybody in my family knows, obviously, now that we have a kid, like when I told my grandma, who's almost 90 years old, that I was gay and then that we were going to have a family, she said that, I think her quote was like, you're very, very lucky that you live in a society that accepts it and some in a society that has science to create that for you. So that shows that it has come a long way. Being like comfortable with your sexuality for being accepting of LGBTQ, but I think it's harder for people to accept the financial side of it almost because that will in a way affect, you know, the people that you're interacting with daily or how you're interacting with them. But if you say like, I'm not going to go out for lunch with you because I don't, that's not how I spend my money or I don't want to go on a luxury cruise with you, then, then that's affecting your friends. Are they going to invite you to things and stuff? So being gay is definitely something that affects our lives, but not as much day-to-day as how we deal with our finances. So yes, it, it is easier to be accepting of ourselves for living like a different lifestyle from everyone else since we already are doing that by being a same-sex family, but leading a different financial life is it's hard, right? That's probably harder for me than being gay. I just wanted to say one other thing. You know, when we did a big screening tour of Playing With Fire over last summer, And as I sat and listened to the reaction to the film, I remember distinctly having this moment where I was like, wow, for all these people who have found the FIRE movement, it's like a coming out moment for them. And I tried to articulate that to the audiences. And I don't think that they totally got it, but maybe you guys understand what I'm saying. There is a very similar feeling to having this awakening where there are other people like you in this case, in the fire, in a hidden taboo world of personal finance that are just like you. And like you go to Camp Mustache or Camp Fire or something. And there's this amazing joy in the same way that like you would find at a gay pride parade where everybody <laughs> just gets to come out and like let their free flag fly and just be. <laughs> and I don't know. Did you, I don't know if you guys found that. As yeah. Well. 
I totally agree. I mean, it's like having to come out of the closet twice. That's how I like to explain it is we came out of the closet once already for our sexual orientation. And now we're having to come out of the closet again because of our financial situation. And both of these things are kind of intertwined in the sense because they're both uncomfortable subjects, right? Before you meet someone, you don't know if they're going to be accepting of you because you're part of the LGBTQ community, right? And so you have to approach that methodically of how you tell someone that you're a lesbian. You don't tell someone that likely on your first interaction with them, right? It's once you become comfortable. And it's the same sort of thing with money is I don't talk to many friends and family about our money situation, yet I'm so much more comfortable talking to people on our Instagram and our blog because they're within that community who's interested in that, right? And so it's similar to like you said, Travis, you know, you're going out to a a gay pride parade and like everyone there is supportive. And same thing for people are coming to us, to our Instagram or our blog. It's because they're supportive of that and want to hear more about it and are interested. So it's like you're immediately connecting with people who have aligned interests. And that's what it's all about, you know, is, is figuring out who within this community am I most relatable to? And that's from both LGBTQ standpoint and a fire standpoint. And we have on our blog, we do this guest interview series. And one of the questions I ask is, have you come out of the fire closet yet? And that's because so many people haven't, right? And people don't realize like, oh, I guess I am having to come out of the closet in a sense, right? And most people would only associate that to people within the LGBTQ community, but those within the fire community too are having to experience that coming out stage. I'd like to take a pause for a moment and recap. In the first half of the show, Travis, Nick, and Court discuss their path to financial independence. After the break, we will delve into whether sexual orientation plays a role in personal finance. But before we do, I wanted to say a thanks to Jouse for supporting Earn and Invest. Have you ever thought about starting your own business? Perhaps you wanted to begin a side hustle or passion project, but weren't sure where to begin. Ensuring a steady income will always be one of the first things you think of and could be the reason you don't eventually take the leap. Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. Business banking can feel complicated, but Joust makes it easy. PayArmor, Joust's invoice payment guarantee product, supports a 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com slash earnpod and enter the promo code WUN and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash E-A-R-N-P-O-D. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Court, we've talked about philosophically 
how these two things relate together, but I'm wondering nuts and bolts whether they really do. I'm going to quote your blog here. You guys say, while we are very aware of the slightly unconventional makeup of our family being lesbian moms, the way we lead our lives and our interests don't tend to revolve around this. And you also say, we are aware that being on an LGBTQ plus family makes us unique, especially in the financial independence space, but we like to focus on much more exciting aspects of our lives. That seems to be the most you guys talk about your sexual orientation anywhere else on the blog. I don't really see much reference to it. I mean, does it really make a difference? It doesn't. And that's, I think, the point of all of this, right? Is like, we are just a family like any other family. I mean, we do things that a quote unquote normal, you know, hetero couple does as well. You know, we enjoy going for walks. We enjoy spending time together as a family. We enjoy going to the pool. You know, we do things that bring us joy. And so like when we introduce ourselves to our neighbors or, you know, random people, we're not saying, hi, we're in Nick and Court, the lesbian family, right? That lives, you know, at so-and-so. That's not how we introduce ourselves, right? Like we are just, you know, hi, this is Nick Court and this is our daughter. You know, I think it's just a part of who we are. It doesn't define us by any sense. I, I don't think. I mean, I think there are other people who are within the LGBTQ community who are much more passionate about being within that community. But for me, like I I'm much more passionate about my personal finances. So if you were to ask me like how to describe myself, I would say I'm a fire freak, not an LGBTQ plus freak. You know, like there's different ways to describe who you are and what your passions are. And for us, this just happens to be what our sexual orientation is, but it's not defining us as who we are, what we do, how we spend our days. I like to think we live like a very quote unquote normal life, just like anyone else would. We just happen to reach FI in our thirties. And that's what makes us weird, not being lesbians. Nick, does it make any difference, your sexual orientation and how you manage finances? Not at all. Court and I have talked about this a couple times in the past little while, just having this topic brought up. And when you contacted us about doing this podcast and sitting across from each other at dinner while our daughter's throwing food everywhere, it's like, what about our life is different than if you know we were married to somebody of the opposite sex, right? I guess one of the biggest things and probably the only thing that I could pinpoint is making a family, like the physical act of using an infertility clinic. You have to pay for that, right? So financially, that was something that we had to take into account. But day to day, there's nothing like we go buy groceries at the same grocery store as everyone else. You know, we go to the same family groups as all the heterosexual couples and their kids. And we go to the same swimming pool. And like, there's nothing that we choose to do that is specific to us being gay at all in our lives you know and it may be different like actually not even like if, if we were single and like let's say you you know people who are single they want to go out and with their friends they want to go have drinks they want to go to the bar whatever you're spending money whether you're gay or straight no matter what bar you're at or <laughs> no matter what restaurant you're at you're spending the same kind of money and I guess one of the big things for being a couple of, with two females is stereotypically the male is the breadwinner in the house. That could be seen as like an issue or like something that would be different for an LGBTQ couple versus a hetero couple. But that has nothing really to do with it. Like I guess court and I, what we bring in financially is, is what it is. Like that's what we have to work with just like anybody else. Travis, I want to delve a little deeper into this question. I had mentioned to you before we started the podcast that I had heard you on the Everyman podcast. 
And on there, you talked about the day in your 30s where you finally felt like a man. And you were mentioning that you were on an arduous climb. And in fact, you were on your way back down and there was some worry that you were in trouble and maybe you wouldn't get down. And when you finally did, you had this epiphany that that day, for the first time, you truly felt like a man. And you talked about the fact that there was a gay male archetype of halting maturity at a young age. And you said that for gay men, sometimes maturity lagged or got stuck at times in that teenager period. And so you saw a lot of these middle-aged gay men who sometimes acted like teenagers. And you were talking about maturity, but I wonder if there's a connection with financial behavior also. Do you think that same lag happens? Let me answer that by explaining a little bit about what I was saying about the archetype. So I do believe that there is a connection to what you're making. In the gay community, gay men especially, like if you ever go to like, you know, a gay neighborhood like here in West Hollywood down on Santa Monica Boulevard, you'll see quite old gay men who are acting like children. They're running around like teenagers and they just, it's like they never quite graduated into full adulthood. There's a lot of different reasons I think that that happens and part of it has to do with the trauma and difficulties of navigating one's own psychology and sexual orientation in a predominantly heterosexual world. But what happens is, in that instance, and I think also generally in our psyches around money in our current culture, is similar. So one of the big archetypes for men in general is to be a provider. And I'll let the lesbians talk about what that (laughs) looks like in the world of lesbians. But I know from the straight world and the gay world that the desire for a man to be a provider is sort of intrinsic. It's almost like from our hunter-gatherer roots or something. We live in a culture where building wealth, which is part of that provider thing, right? So one of the cool things about having a portfolio of passive income is that it is a basis of provision that is enduring. So in previous cultures, that would happen through things like agriculture, right? Like in the uh, British agricultural aristocracy, they would have all of these chateaus that had land. And, you know, these people were living off of passive income. And there was a providing that was happening there that was sort of very, had a lot of longevity, let's just say. In our culture, the step between being a consumer and moving to provider is weak to say the least. We are indoctrinated to not become providers. There's something about our general system that wants us to forever be in the seat of consumption. If you look at the lifespan of a human being, where, and girls, you can tell me, where on the life cycle of a human being is consumption the solution to every problem? Well, you're about to get into it with your baby who's going to become a toddler. Because if you look at a toddler, every solution to their problem is to stick something in their mouth, eat, eat, consume, consume, consume. That's like one part of the human evolutionary tract, right? Mm -hmm. And our culture profits from us being retarded into that point of development. So 
if our culture had its way, we would all forever just be consumers because then the highest echelon, which is now the 1%, which is creating all kinds of political problems, benefits eternally from this rash of just, you know, overzealous zombie consumers. The FIRE movement is, in a way, a sort of wisdom program that is enabling people to move from the point of just being a consumer to the point of becoming a provider, which is to say somebody, an individual or a group of people who are able to create something with lasting value that is beyond their own self-preservation and pleasure. Does that make sense? That was so well said. (laughs) Yeah. It does. What I'm wondering from that and from what we were talking about before is, is there a connection to that gay male archetype? So is it harder to actually get to financial independence for someone who's stuck in that archetype? I think it's hard for anyone, gay, straight, queer, any, whatever, to get to that point. Because what you're talking about is a step toward maturity. And you're talking about a step toward adulthood. And we live in a world where we are infantilized. I mean, you look at like, for instance, no knock to Hollywood, because I make my living off of it. (laughs) But Hollywood culture, which is like people running around like 12 year olds for their entire lives. The things that are important are just so stupid. You know, you open up a gossip column on any given day. And it's I mean, it is just trash. It's it serves no real purpose. So If you're not able to take the step into mature adulthood, you are a slave to a system that you have no input in. It's kind of like, I don't know why I'm feeling political today, maybe because of the (laughs) Iowa caucuses are coming up or whatever, but it's that whole thing of like, if you don't vote, you know, you're renouncing your entire contribution to being a citizen. You know, it's the same thing with personal finance. If you allow yourself to go on forever to just be a pawn in the process of economy, you will forever be a victim. You're just a slave. You're a wage slave by any other name. Where the financial independence community is brilliant and amazing is that they encourage you to take that next leap psychologically and take responsibility to move again from beyond consumption to something much more sustainable. I think that intertwines nicely with being a member of the LGBTQ community and also a member of the FIRE community. We're like a subset of a subset where we have learned to think differently. We were kind of forced to think differently by our sexual orientation of being told what's right and what's normal and this is how you're supposed to live your life and you're supposed to get married to someone of the opposite sex and have two kids and you know live in that white picket fence right like so we've already escaped away from that mentality which i think helps develop you know that mental state of shifting away from that consumer mentality too of learning you know life is not about going to work and then spending all that money or being too tired, sitting on the couch and then spending all weekend spending your money away and like doing that hedonic treadmill. We've learned to escape that because we've already learned to think of life differently than how generations before us told us this is how you have to live your life or your family and friends, you know, are telling you this is how you have to live your life. And you've learned how to think on your own terms and 
just think period, right? Like we're, we live in the society where like, we don't have to think anymore. Like everyone just doing the same thing. Everyone's reading the same gossip. Everyone's reading about the same celebrities and everyone wants to be those celebrities. And we're all chasing this life that's just not going to happen. So instead, you know, figure out what it is that you value. And I can't tell you what that is. You know, everyone's values will be different and figuring that out is so important. And I think that's a huge message that the FIRE community supports and spreads and having more people understand that and living your life to your own terms because it's different than what society tells you. It's an amazing feeling to be able to do that. That's a really good point, actually. I'm so grateful that I'm gay because it has given me advantages that are hidden that you guys probably understand. There's something about being an outlier. There's something about being an observer to a broader culture that gives you a weird advantage. You just are able to see things that other people aren't able to see. And in the best of instances, that can allow you to create a really extraordinary life for yourself. I think the fire people are kind of like that as well. I wanted to ask you guys, Nick and Court, though, what's your experience when you talk to other LGBTQ people about fire? Because I find that a lot of them are not interested at all, which is surprising to me because you would think as the outlier thing that they would get it. The same thing happens with the people that come to LA to make it rich in the entertainment industry. I talk to them about it and they're kind of like bored by it and they're all here to get rich. <laughs> Ironically. Ironically. Have you guys noticed that? Or I, I'm just curious about what what your conversations well, are. Well, we've noticed a lot of people, whether they're part of the LGBTQ plus community or not, just are not interested in the fire movement. Like they just do not get it. And that's fine. You know, and we are not here to push our ways and make this like a cult by any means, right? It's like, if you get it, then I'll talk to you for hours. If you don't get it, you know, we'll move on. I think, you know, for a lot of people within the LGBTQ plus community, they're trying to define themselves externally to make up for a lack of something from the past, maybe, where maybe they didn't feel a part of a group or they weren't welcomed because they were gay or lesbian or whatever it was. Now that they are comfortable enough to be in their own skin, they now feel the need to live this extravagant life to show like, hey, look, I made it type of thing. Or I'm not as different as you think I am. Right. And they're trying more to fit in to society and say, hey, we go out to brunch too. You know, we enjoy whatever you enjoy, you know, whatever it may be. And I think that can be the alternate to it is, you know, feeling this need to fit in and show like you should be accepting me and I'm going to do what you do. And then they become more so part of society, which is that consumer side. And that's the negative twist to being part of the LGBTQ plus community. If you can go the opposite way and take that side that you were talking about, Travis, and say, hey, look, we're already seen as differently. We're already perceiving things differently. Let's do the same thing to our finances. You know, that's the ultimate goal of everyone here. But I think just because the FIRE movement is maybe what, 1% of society, not many people think this way. So I think the same thing happens within the LGBTQ plus community. Most people tend to Air on the side of like, hey, I want to show that I made it. I want to show that I'm the same, you know, that sort of mentality. And that may tie back into your question earlier, Doc, about fitting in and that idea of, you know, being like part of the dominant culture. Maybe there is a, a driver there, yeah. I would ask Nick and Court then, do you think the prototypical lesbian money culture for most of society is then fitting in to kind of be like the majority? I think that's what 
everyone wants. Nobody wants to be seen as different, seen as, you know, the the weird kid or the weird person or the person who does things differently. Unless you're very comfortable with yourself and sexuality aside, how you're living your life, nobody wants to have people judge them or anything like that. So I think people who are in the LGBTQ community, we've all felt like, wow, we are being judged for our sexual orientation or our choices in who we love and who we, you know, like or whatever. Everybody's kind of in the LGBT community has dealt with that with who they love. So then it's like, do I really want to put myself through something where I'm again going to be the outlier or the person that no one can relate to or whatever. Everybody wants to fit in, <laughs> you know? So I think if you've gone through being a lesbian or gay and you haven't been accepted, then you're not going to want to put yourself out there again in another taboo area of your life, conforming and being accepted by people you work with, people you're friends with, spending money and how you spend your money and what you spend your money on is that's what everybody talks about your experiences, whether it's things or experiences, that's what you're talking to your friends about. Right. So it's sad that like wanting to fit in and wanting to conform means living paycheck to paycheck, being swamped in consumer debt and having all these credit card bills to pay. Like it's sad that that's the normal. And so many people are okay with that. My hope, you know, of this podcast and any podcast out there that's about the fire movement is to show, you know, like it's important to think differently. It's important to be yourself. And I think members of the LGBTQ plus community have had to go through that and had to learn like to step out of the box and realize like, I'm just going to be me. Like this is who I am and I'm going to be okay with it. And then because you become aware of that, like self-actualization, you become more comfortable with doing things differently. So I think it's all, you know, intertwined in a sense. You just need to be you. That's the biggest thing. Whoever you are, like you be you, you be comfortable being you. And then like everything else just comes so much easier. Like just stray away from what, you know, society is telling you to do. For me, when I hear lesbian, the stereotypical picture that comes to someone's mind is someone who tends to be overweight, wearing baggy clothes, drinking lots of beer and very animated. I don't think I fit any of that. There's a stereotype and then there's you. You just need to be you. Like just because you happen to be a lesbian or you happen to be a gay man, that doesn't mean you have to now live your life this one certain way. You know, it's just important to be you, whoever you are. Travis, is there a prototypical gay male money culture or prototype that's out there? I know Hollywood certainly seems to show one side of gay male behavior when it comes to money. Well, yeah, that is stereotypical, but like all stereotypes, there is some truth in it, I guess. Probably it's being fabulous, and that is definitely a thing with gay men. You know, they like to be fabulous. I mean, <laughs> I like a nice pair of shoes, and once in a while we'll do a splurge that my fire self probably would not be very happy with, but I would say it's just about being fabulous. Fancy clothes, <laughs> designer clothes, you know, nice stuff. But Spending that's money. not really just gay. It's that's everyone our culture i like to kind of round up this conversation with talking about our community in general nick and court do you think there are more lgbtq plus voices now in the financial independence community than when you started being interested in it yes there are and there's probably more than 
I'm even aware of. Like Travis, I didn't even know that you were part of the LGBTQ plus community. So that was, you know, one that I learned of when we were arranging this podcast. I think we're definitely growing just as any minority grows. You know, there are people who are closeted who feel more and more comfortable to come out as they learn about others who are doing this too. So I think, yes, it's definitely growing. I've made some great friendships and relationships with other members of the LGBTQ plus subsect of the FIRE community. So we're definitely there. You know, it's growing just like there's more females within the FIRE movement. You know, every different, you know, minority group is is coming out and showing like that this is a very diverse group. When we first started out with FIRE, obviously we weren't part of Instagram and all of those communities. So I think now we have found that there are a lot more LGBTQ people within the FIRE community only because we have put ourselves out there to be seen as that. So then people are then approaching us and comfortable approaching us and telling us, you know, we're also lesbian and into fire. Those same people were probably there when we were first interested in it too, but there wasn't the Instagram or the blog that we had as a platform to put ourselves out there. So then we weren't being approached by those people and we weren't meeting those people, right? Obviously there's more of a voice now, but it's not to say that those same people weren't there before. Travis, any parts of our community in which you don't feel is accepted in? Pockets of resistance to your voice because it comes from someone who looks or sounds different than them? I don't think so. The fire subculture is very welcoming culture in general. I mean, it's pretty progressive and just welcoming. I've never felt unwelcome, though. I would echo that and say, at least from the outside, the only kind of discrimination that I think exists, and it exists in me too, is unawareness. And getting back to how we started this conversation, my only sense of not fully accepting other people who don't look or sound like me in this community is the fact that maybe my blinders don't let me see them always as clearly as I should have. But I've never heard disparaging remarks, whether it be race, color, creed, nor sexual orientation. And I think our community is really good that way. I think so too. And, you know, I would say that probably how that happens is you don't know what questions to ask that you don't know to ask, right? So we all come to life with our own set of assumptions. And I think it's very easy for hetero people in the fire movement to come to the table from a hetero perspective of like, we're a family, we have children, you know, I've never been asked by anybody except for you, Doc, and I give you a lot of credit. (laughs) How does being gay affect my path to fire? Are there any nuances there? Nobody's ever asked me that outright. And I think that that's just because we all kind of assume that other people are just like us or nothing like us. (laughs) The beauty of the fire community is that the whole concept is that it's about your own personal finance. So there's no element of competition at all. So when you're talking to people about fire, you're talking to them about like getting excited about how you're going to improve your life and or your finances or your financial situation. And you're not trying to be better than them. You're trying to encourage them to also make their life better. So there's that element of competition or like, I'm better than you because of this, or I, you know, I have this and this, that's not there. Right. LGBTQ or not, it's going to be an accepting community. The only reason we're writing a blog or Mr. Money Mustache is writing a blog is to help people, right? So it's not 
a community that is full of competition or I'm better than you because, or even comparison, right? It's just, how can I do this for myself? What we're doing isn't really affecting anybody else at all. Putting the personal back into personal finance. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And just to add on to that, I agree completely with both comments so far. And we are doing what we're doing because we genuinely enjoy this and we want to help other people. There's nothing in this for us to like have a blog, right? We're in this to share information and bounce ideas off of each other within the community. And, you know, you hear about this, you pass it on to a friend, and now we're all saving hundreds of dollars because of this one technique, you know, like whatever it may be. And that's the goal of all of this, right, is to create this welcoming community that's full of smart people or people who are interested in learning and the goal is, you know, to help each other and to inspire each other and show, you know, some people may connect more with other people. And so that's kind of where we're at of trying to become more open with what we're doing and open with our finances and open with our family is some people may resonate with us more so than, you know, another blogger out there. And then we can create that friendship and that's what this is all about. You know, if this ends up with five great relationships that we keep, you know, 10 years down the road, then it's all worth it. You know, that's what this is about. I'm going to imperfectly quote JL Collins here, but when I had him on the show, he said something to the extent of, you know, money doesn't care if you're straight or gay, (laughs) doesn't care if you're black or white, money just doesn't care. And since that's something we all talk about and are working to optimize in our lives, it creates a common ground. Exactly. I think JL Collins's drag persona would be outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. I was about to say, we can all try to run that by him. I don't think we're going to get buy-in on his side on that one. But I'm, I don't know. He might go for it. He's I might be wrong. All right. Well, I want to end the show the way we always end the show here at the What's Up Next podcast by asking you what's up next in your life and where can we find you on the internet? Travis, what is up next in your life and where can we find you? What's up next is we're just trying to get the movie playing with fire out as broadly as we possibly can. You can find me on www.playingwithfire.co or my own website, travisshakespeare.com. And I will mention that in Travis's bio, I mentioned mostly playing with fire, but he's produced and directed many unscripted shows and has an Emmy or at least been Emmy nominated, correct? I have been Emmy nominated. Many of my shows have won Emmys for different things. Yeah. My big show right now is called Life Below Zero on National Geographic, also now on Disney Plus. About survivalists who are pretty fire. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way of going. If you live a survivalist lifestyle, you just don't need much. (laughs) All right, Nick and Cord, same for you. What is up next in your life and where can we find you on the internet? What's up next for us is, well, Travis, you would like to hear, we are hosting a Playing With Fire documentary showing in Calgary. So we're hosting that at the end of February. We just reached fire for our hopeful family of four. So, you know, we are planning to live life according to our own terms going forward. I'm still working part-time. Nick has retired early. We're spending as much time together as a family. We go out to the cabin in the summers and visit friends and family all across North America. So that's what's up next with us. And you can find us at www.modernfamily.com or on Instagram at Modern Family. Nick, anything to add? Nothing to add. She did a pretty (laughs) good job. I will be keeping a toddler alive. That is what is up next in my life. (laughs) Excellent. Well, I am Doc G and this has been the What's Up Next podcast. I'd like to thank Travis, Nick, and Court. That's a wrap. 
Are you ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, I wish I could listen to another episode of the Earn and Invest podcast? Well, now you can engage in our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.earnandinvest.com. That's E-A-R-N-A-N-D-I-N-V-E-S-T.com. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the Earn and Invest Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I.com backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Brad Barrett, the co-creator and co-host of the Choose FI podcast and inveterate board game enthusiast. Brad, welcome back to the show. How you doing? Hey, Doc, I am doing wonderful. Thanks for having me back. And today we're going to talk about episode 93, which discussed board games. That was with William McVeigh, Cindy Sai, and Sun Woo Lee. I have to tell you, Brad, I was doing the introduction for that episode. And there's this point where I say, and I hate board games. I say this in the introduction, and in my mind's eye, I saw Brad Barrett shaking his fist at me. (laughs) (laughs) And I wrote you a message about two hours after. (laughs) I I knew. I knew that was coming. I'm like, Brad will write me after this when I foresaw that. Yeah, I definitely uh, took advantage of our friendship here to say, oh man, Doc, I was listening to this and I wish that I was there. I wanted to be recording. You're like, hey, let's do a follow-up. So yeah, that worked out well. But yes, I was very much shaking my head. I mean, because to me, you're such a thoughtful and intelligent guy. And like, I figured erroneously, obviously, that you would have been a board game aficionado, not less a hater. I know I let people down with that episode. I know I did. And the thing about it, Brad, is I could have you on almost every episode. So this is the problem. There's certain people in our community that I can know can speak very intelligently about a lot of things, but I know board games you're very passionate about. Before we get to episode 93, let's talk a little bit about Choose FI. You guys have been putting out a huge amount of content lately. What's going on? Yeah. So, I mean, I think in response to to what's going on in the world, we really wanted to provide just more of a of an ever-present resource, kind of. We just, we know there's so much going on in everyone's lives, in our own lives, in our own brains, frankly, right? Like there's anxiety, at least for me, there's, I don't know, just not being certain of what's going on and just constant new news, right? Like, Every single day, there's something new with tax deadlines being extended or the PPP loans or the stimulus. And it just didn't seem like we would be serving the financial independence community as well as we wanted to if we were just publishing our normal content. And I mean, honestly, Doug, like, you know how, how it is to record uh, podcasts. Like, we had just finished an epic, epic set of like months of recording. I mean, we had. I think six months worth of our Monday interview episodes ready to roll. And we pretty much just shelved all of them. Maybe that's not forever, but certainly for the the time being, we just said like, this is not serving our community as best we can now by putting out episodes that we recorded in what seems like a different world. Right. And, you know, we we're not going to keep up this five times a week cadence for forever. I don't think it's uh, sustainable, frankly. I think it also like it feels like 
we need it to be there. And I think, you know, we're, we're going to kind of calm this down to about three times a week from here on out, but still trying to provide timely resources as much as we can. And I've seen this a real common issue. It's a little bit of inside baseball for us podcasters, but it's really hard to decide how much to keep up with your current format versus changing to bring in all this new information. Most of us do record episodes earlier. And so I know a lot of our listeners struggle with this idea of part of them wants to feel like business as usual and hear our normal great content, but then they also want to know what's happening. They want to know about the CARES Act. It's hard to juggle it all. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I think also like as a podcast listener, as, as you know, I'm certainly a listener of your podcasts and, and probably a couple dozen others. Like there's also a sense of maybe what's the right balance? Is there overload, right? Like if you're putting out four or five episodes a week, are you in under the terms and the guise of trying to help people really, which is what, again, we're trying to do. We're trying to provide information that's useful. Are we overloading people and making it like this obligatory thing where they have to listen and choose if I now five times a week. And I, you know, I say that jokingly, obviously nobody has to listen at all, but you know, I know that's how I feel. Maybe it's like the, uh, the old type a personality in me of like getting the gold star and checking off the box of, uh, listening to all the episodes, but it can be a bit overwhelming. So yeah, I mean, I think, I think just like all of us in every aspect of this, we're just trying to find a balance. And I don't know that any of us have hit on something that I, you know, at least in my own life, I don't want to speak for anybody else. I'm not sure I've hit the perfect balance, but, but we're trying, we're trying our best. And I see that both with the podcast and, and in real life. And certainly in our personal balance, part of that is incorporating more board games. Let's talk <laughs> a little bit about Ooh, the episode. That's the best segue of all time. Tell me your first impressions. What did you think as you were listening to this? I know that you had a million ideas pumping through your head as you were listening <laughs> to this one. Yeah, no, it was, a, it was a really great look at the value of board games, how they are a significant part of the FI community, right? Like we've all met many of us and, you know, certainly you and I have been to many of these meetups, camp fies, et cetera. And it seems like much to your chagrin, obviously, that, <laughs> that board games are always breaking out. I don't know if there's something in the mindset of people who are pursuing the path to FI or what it is, frankly, but uh, that I, I haven't really thought about too deeply. But yeah, I mean, certainly it seems like people pursuing, let's say, FI and loving board games goes pretty hand in hand from what I've seen in passing. And, you know, William and Sun Wu, I have uh, played board games with personally, and they're both phenomenal. You know, they're always introducing new games to me that I've never otherwise been been involved in. But uh, the, the thought of chess was an interesting one also. And that reminded me actually of a uh, book I'd read by the famous poker player, Annie Duke. And this is not a slight to chess at all. I have no ability to play chess. It's always maybe been a little daunting for me. But I look at board games similar to how Annie Duke looks at, at poker, which is there's uncertainty you can make the right decisions. Like she talks about resulting, which is this concept where looking at the result of what turns out in any aspect of life, you know, you could talk about a poker hand or you could talk about just any decision you've made, buying a new house or moving to a new job. Looking at the result is a fundamentally inaccurate way of approaching, was that the right decision? Life is uncertain. Luck factors into things you have not all of the information, right? I mean, that's just the way the world works. You don't have every shred of information and you make the best decisions that you can based on 
all of those factors. Like I used to play poker, I'm certainly not any type of uh, professional or semi-professional, but I played poker and like you could go in with aces and you could still lose. You can play it well even and still lose. It's just sometimes somebody gets a runner and gets a straight or, you know, full house or you just never know. But that doesn't mean the decision is bad because probably 95 times out of 100, if I had played it that way, it would have turned out well. Looking at the result is not the way to approach life. It's looking at making sound decisions. Over the course of my lifetime, if I'm faced with 100 of these scenarios, probably you know X number, right? 70, 80, 90% of them are gonna turn out well and 10 to 30% of them aren't. But that doesn't mean my decision-making was poor. It means luck or whatever or bad information that I couldn't have known at the time. Okay, the decision turned out poorly, but I think that still is the fundamentally accurate way to approach life. So I would argue that board games are very similar. I'm interested that you've discussed this idea of odds making and strategizing about board games. And I definitely see the connection with dealing with your own personal finances and even where our current situation is now, you talk about the importance of good decision-making regardless of the outcome. A lot of people right now are feeling very down about their own personal finances because we didn't expect this pandemic. Some people call it a black swan event. Other people wouldn't. But the point being is even if you made all the right moves, sometimes even the odds are with you, but the outcome isn't. I see that in board games a lot. I certainly feel that today in personal finance. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and we've seen a bunch of articles like, is the fire movement over? Are all of these super savers, are they doomed? To me, it just, it misses the point entirely. Like who's doomed? Are the 60% of people who don't have $500 in the bank? I don't truly mean that, but like they're not doomed, obviously. But in comparison, where would you rather be? Is, is ultimately what I'm trying to say. Like, would you rather have 10, 20, $50,000 in the bank? And maybe your quote unquote early retirement plans are now 14 years away as opposed to 12. Who cares? Right? Like, would you rather be in that position or would you rather have just been going along to get along just like everybody else living paycheck to paycheck or getting in debt and have nothing to show for those years of work? Like to me, that is such an obvious obvious answer. Following the path to FI, I think, and having a savings rate and having whatever amount of savings or net worth, you're in a much better position than you would have been otherwise. So like looking at what has happened short term in the market, it's foolish at best. Yeah, I can see that to truly succeed in board games, right, you learn how to play the odds and then you learn how to make it an iterative process. Each time you make it a little bit better, you learn a little bit more strategy. So the next time you play, things improve. I think with our finances, we don't realize that you can do the same thing even in a recession like this. We're not stopping and quitting. We're slowly iterating, re-strategizing, reworking the odds. And that process of doing that over and over again makes you a pretty darn good board game player. I think that is how, how we approach it. So our newest game, it's uh, not technically a board game, but it's a card game. It's a deck building game. So it's essentially a board game. It's called Dominion. You start with 10 cards. It's basically the weakest hand possible. You can buy a card or cards, depending on what, what you have in hand, each turn around the board. Okay, so when I'm playing with our family of four, we all start with our 10 cards. We 
play the first hand of five and we start buying better cards and better cards. And, but you know, you go around the, the four of us go around and I get my second turn and third and et cetera. And it's so interesting about, like you said, that iterative process, there's short term thinking and there's long term thinking, there's early game strategy, there's later game strategy, something that might help you at the beginning, you need to make the determination like, is this going to help me enough that when it starts hindering me at the end, when it starts taking up 20% of my five card hand, did I get enough value from it at the beginning? Was it worth it? When you're playing a game like this Dominion, so this again is our absolute obsession right now. We bought like 11 of the 13 expansion sets that exist and we have millions of different combinations of games that we could play at this point. But like you have to look at the cards that are available to purchase at the beginning of the game. And you come up with a rough plan, but you also know that, again, just like poker, luck factors into this sometimes. You might have this great plan, but then you might get two cards in your hand that don't work well together. And it just, it was unfortunate, right? And you can't utilize those as well as you had thought. So you need to iterate. You need to think about what am I going to do to deal with this going forward. And, you know, you're sitting there for 30 to 45 minutes and, you know, I've got my eight-year-old and 11-year-old sitting here with me. They are playing at an adult level. They could play at any table anywhere in the world. And they're thinking every second of that 45 minutes, what are the other three people at the table doing? Because just like in life, what the people around you are doing factors into what's going on in your life in this particular case, in your game. For instance, we played a game yesterday where my older daughter, Anna, she came up with this novel strategy to use this one card that I had previously written off as the least useful card out of probably the 400 that we have. And she showed such patience by using this card over and over again and accruing the benefit. It was like, it was like compounding interest on it. And I was ahead by so much, Doc, like at the beginning, it was crazy. <laughs> And she just decimated me in the long term because she stuck to her guns. It was amazing. I love how you brought in the idea of compounding interest as you're talking about how she decimated you in this game. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's so true. It was, it was really impressive. And like, I will never look at that one particular card the same ever again. Because again, I had written it off as virtually worthless and she used it through patience. And I just thought that was really, really cool. And like, you're constantly using, there's mental math going on all the time. There's even like a break-even analysis of, okay, I can buy cards that will, let's say, help me in the long term. So I'm buying cards that make my deck more powerful as opposed to buying what are known as like victory points, like the ultimate points you need to, it, again, this is in this one case of Dominion, but I think it, it's a perfect microcosm for life and, you know, and many other board games. It's like you could buy this victory point card that gets you points in the short term, but then again, it takes up space in your hand because it provides you no value. So you have to make that determination at that point of saying like, okay, do I buy something that adds a ton of value but doesn't get me points now, but will down the, down the road or do I just take the points and run and hope that I can almost run the clock out super quickly and get more of these points? And then it also matters where you are in your deck. Like if you're close to shuffling your cards again, 
you know, it's all these little, little thought processes that like you have to think about every single decision and you have no idea what the other players are planning also, which impact you. That strategy that I was talking about with my daughter, Anna, like that card that she used to such great effect actually was an attack card against me specifically. So I had jumped out to this lead and then not only did she use it with that compound interest aspect, but she used it as an attack to destroy my debt. It was this multi-pronged strategy that you know she couldn't have known at the beginning that she would use it like that, but she saw what I did and she adapted. Brad, you mentioned buying cards. And when I first set out to do this episode, I thought we were going to end up talking about games like Monopoly, right? Ones that were expressly financial or thinking about money. But most of these games don't really have anything to do with money, do they? No. I mean, very few of the games that that we play even have a money component necessarily. I mean, I guess, I guess resources. So it's not money in the strict sense of let's play Monopoly. If the reason why you hate board games so much is because of like a childhood trauma with Monopoly, like please (laughs) put that out of your brain. Like that is probably the worst game you could play. Like mind numbingly awful. There's no strategy. Like it takes three hours and you just kind of go back and forth and it's a stalemate essentially. Whereas many of these new style games, they deal with resources. You could make an argument, it like thinking about money in our lives, right? Because what are time, money, like what are the resources we deal with? And it's resource management, this fine balance of short-term thinking versus long-term thinking and understanding that you have to change your strategy. So, I mean, you could even make the argument if we wanted to take this to an extreme, like that it has to do with a 40-year timeline to FI. You know, you are making different decisions on day one than at year 39 and a half. Again, you have to constantly adapt with new information. I think that is another aspect of board games that I see as crucially important. Like, again, I always think about in terms of how can I teach my kids? Again, my daughter's down there playing these games 45 minutes at a clip, multiple times a day, and they are constantly thinking, they're constantly strategizing, they're thinking about math. They're doing all this stuff. It's amazing and astonishing. And I don't say this to like, you know, brag on my kids. Like, I, yeah, hopefully, you know, I'm not that type of person. <laughs> but like, they could play at any table in the world. And it's not that they're utterly brilliant, anything like that. It's just they've played so often. And it's that line of thinking is now ingrained in them. I think that'll carry over to great effect in life. Really what we're teaching our kids or ourselves when we play these games is how to manage big problems. And isn't that what life is? Whether we're talking about financial independence or changing the world or politics, we're really talking about making an impact on the big problems in life. And board games teach you how to strategize and think about how to use incremental gain to solving those big problems, which is ultimately winning the game. And maybe that's what financial independence is too. Yeah, no, that's a cool way of looking at it. And, you know, another thing is, and this is not to say that like you have to stay ultra locked in on your financial independence life every second, you know, in a board game, you have to stay engaged. You have to realize that like, especially when you're playing with high level players, that if you take a turn or two off and you're not really thinking, if you're not engaged in what is this going to, how is this going to impact me down the road? Like, what are the other 40 decisions that I've made prior to this one? And how do those inform my next decision? Because they do, they factor in, right? Like, again, in this Dominion game, like when you're building this cohesive deck, 
you have to think about and keep in your mind what has happened previously. Like, what was your strategy? What are the other people at the table? Like, what are their strategies? Does this next card that I'm going to buy factor into that? How does it help me? Whereas like, if you're just kind of doing it haphazardly, you might buy something that actually hurts you. You know, at these higher levels, like you need to stay engaged and just your brain is constantly thinking. I know lots of people love to do crossword puzzles and Sudoku puzzles and things like that. But like for us, the way that we keep our brains engaged is through board games. And I think, uh, you know, just a variety of these games, like they all have a different level of strategy. And I would really, really implore you to, uh, to, to <laughs> think about your position on this. I can, I can just do it. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, you know, and frankly, like, it's just a lot of fun. I think that's the coolest thing is, you know, we're not super competitive with each other. People aren't storming off and getting mad. If you set the example, you know, for your family that like, this is a fun time for us to be together. You can play as hard as you want, but the one rule, Barrett's never cheat is like something we've come up with. Like if you even intimate that someone else is cheating, like it would never cross any of our minds. Like it's inconceivable. So that's just table stakes for sitting down at our table. Like you are not allowed to sit there and cry because things went poorly. Like again, things go poorly in life. Sometimes you have to learn to deal with disappointment. Again, not to bring up this game from yesterday where my daughter crushed me. I, I had a great plan at the beginning of this game. And like, I thought I would have said 95 times out of 100, I would have won that game. And she just destroyed me. You know, I wasn't sitting there crying. I'm feeling you, Brad, because my <laughs> son now, like I'll go to fix something in the house and spend an hour doing it. And I can't get it done. And my 15 year old son will look something up on YouTube, walk over and fix it in five minutes. And he crushes me all the time, <laughs> just not in board games, but <laughs> I get the point. Nice. I would say one of the most compelling arguments for me for board games is the fact that, and I've been pretty open about this, finding financial independence, finding this personal finance community is the closest place where I've ever felt like I was amongst my people. And so many people I care about when I go to these get-togethers and meetings and I see their faces light up and how much fun they're having, it's clearly something I have to rethink. We are rethinking a lot right now. Life has changed. A lot of us are staying at home because of coronavirus. What does board gaming look like in a time of coronavirus? Are we moving online? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So what's kind of cool is quite literally in 90 minutes from now, our family is doing a board game via Zoom with my brother and his wife who are kind of stuck outside of Toronto right now. They were traveling around the world, so they left their jobs as international teachers and have been traveling around the world. They were set to start in Shanghai, actually, this coming August, I guess. And you know they're kind of up in the air right now. And since we can't be with them in person, we're actually playing a board game via Zoom. You know, we're all kind of doing the best we can with this new life that we're faced with. And I think this is obviously transcends just, you know, board games. Like we are all trying to do the best we can. And like, think about novel ways to come up with a better solution that you might not have thought of. Use a little creativity. I find that to be one of the joys of life. How do you come up with an answer where it otherwise doesn't seem possible? I don't know that, you know, presume that we would have been able to come up with an answer. And there are online games. This Dominion game that I was talking about, there's an online version of it. And we could actually, they could sign up for an account or any of us, you know, I could play with you if you want. We could 
all sign up for free accounts and we can actually add each other as friends and play. Like there are apps for Ticket to Ride and uh, Catan, which are two of our absolute favorite games. And I would put on your short list of uh, games if you're thinking about getting started. And, you know, you can buy an app for under $5 and you have hundreds of hours potentially of, of enjoyment out of that. It's kind of cool to see how these game developers have made this more inclusive for all of us. In fairness, I, just like I still love my actual tangible books as opposed to a Kindle, I still love the actual board games and just holding, holding the pieces and the cards and all these things. But man, it's, uh, you know, you do the best you can with the situation at hand. And yeah, there's lots of options for online gaming for sure. It seems like the online gamers are a different ilk than us financial independence people who really do like to be sitting in front of cards and a board. Yeah, I think there's a nice social aspect of it as well. Talking about poker, you know, like I used to play poker back, this was back in the day. I don't know if you even remember this when uh, early 2000s where Poker Stars was hugely popular and people would play like 10 different games all at once. And it was just, it seemed like a job as opposed to like this fun get together, you know, where you might win some, you might lose some, et cetera, but, but it's more just for the experience. And yeah, to me, we just love the experience of sitting down with our family or extended family, friends, whomever, and just playing a game. It's, uh, it's a very comforting thing for us. A few moments ago, you mentioned your brother, Scott, right? Your yeah. brother's name is Scott? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I thought it would be a good chance for us to talk just a few minutes about the way financial independence in our community is being impacted by coronavirus and this pandemic as well as the recession. Your brother was doing slow travel. I've spoken to a number of people who thought they would be traveling the world right now. We didn't foresee this stuff coming. I mean, it's had an effect on our community. It certainly has. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's impacted Scott and his wife, Kristen, significantly. It's impacted, obviously, many, many thousands of people in our community. And I think adapting to new realities. I mean, I think that's a critical part of being in the Phi community and just like our mindset, right? Like I think our mindset sets people in this community apart and not wishing for a reality that might not exist anymore or, you know, might not exist for a time being like you deal with it as it, as it is. And you try to forecast how you can make the best moves going forward. It, it comes back again to almost like board games and poker, right? Like doing the best you can, like Scott and Kristen were traveling, they were in Europe and they wanted to kind of make their way back to North America and they read the tea leaves kind of and got out of Spain before the borders were closed down. They got to Canada just before those borders were closed. They were able to stay a step or two ahead. That has helped them dramatically. Now it's the age old problem in the Phi community is healthcare, right? Or health insurance, I should say. And like they literally cannot come to the US right now because they don't have health insurance. So you know, they're working on that. But again, you can't pine for a reality that isn't there. You know, I'm sure they'd love to be in Portugal right now or be wherever and start up at their school, which you know may or may not happen, you know, in, in the fall. You just deal with it as it is. I mean, I think, Doc, we're all doing that in our own little ways. This is such a stupid, stupid example. Four weeks ago, I realized, oh, wow, the governor just closed all non-essential businesses. I'm going to need a haircut at some point. You know, I'm going to know a little thin on top and it looks pretty terrible when it's scraggly. And uh, I bought a set of hair trimmers from Amazon and 
I got it the very next day. But if you go on Amazon today, everybody else in the world has thought of that and they're all sold out, right? So like, am I some genius for thinking about this? No, of course not. Did I think about it in advance? I did. I think you need to start, especially when the world is changing. You need to think about like, what are the moves I can make ahead of time to make my life better? Just knowing that things are changing. Would I love to go out to my normal barber and, and get my haircut that I'm so used to? Yeah, of course. Was it a little scary going under the, uh, the buzzer with my wife standing behind me? <laughs> it certainly was. But, <laughs> <laughs> but this is the new reality. And you know, I think, I think that's something I've been trying to do throughout this entire crisis, if you will, is just kind of think through what's going to come, not tomorrow, but a month or two or six from now. And the best I can, you know, I, I'm not Nostradamus. I don't have any great insight into the world, but I've been thinking a little bit differently and, and it's challenging. And, and that aspect of it, at least is exciting. You mean no matter how far you are ahead, your daughter might still have that card, which knocks you out. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and <laughs> there's always someone, someone in your life that, that, <laughs> that might be there. But uh, yeah, she, oh, I'm going to have nightmares about that card. Doc. <laughs> you know, it's funny for all those years, many naysayers about financial independence were saying, wait till the next recession comes, wait till the next recession comes. Well, it certainly feels like it's come. And the more conversations I have surrounding personal finance and financial independence, I realize that a lot of our modern day movement probably sprung up from the 2008 recession. So as opposed to thinking that this could cause our community to contract, if we look at history, it's quite possible that as this starts to resolve, the ideas of financial independence may explode. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, I think the modern financial independence community as we know it probably did spring up throughout the 2008-2009 Great Recession or whatever they want to call it. And again, I think it goes back to, and, and I'm not one of these you know, anti-media people or blame the media, like, but, but there are slants on articles. I mean, I think that's you know, pretty, there's no question about that. And like, I've seen a lot of articles that say like, you know, again, is this movement over? Because I think they're presupposing that everyone's sitting on the beach, you know, sipping umbrella drinks, and they're already financially independent and retired early. Like, I don't know about you, but I can count on less than less than two fingers, the number of people who are doing that. But even if you look at the community at large, what percentage are even at FI? I mean, I would say it's probably certainly sub 10%, maybe sub 5%. If these articles were written that okay, 100% of us are at FI and that we're living off this you know, nest egg, okay, then sure, maybe a 30% drop is going to impact some people, especially people who weren't conservative enough with their safe withdrawal rates and things like that. But again, going back to what I said maybe 20 minutes ago, every person that I know in the financial independence community who is trying to make their life better by increasing their savings rate or optimizing this or you know, focusing on community and happiness those people are in dramatically better shape than they were before they found financial independence. And I suspect they're going to be in dramatically better shape still five or 10 years from now, and this will be but a blip. And you know, when you have a significant savings rate and you have money in the bank, you have more power. You have options to not freak out when a situation like this happens, right? Like this may, might be the perfect reason to argue in favor of financial independence. How many people have no money saved up? Believe me, I, this, I, I feel 
truly and deeply for the tens upon tens of millions of people in this situation. I mean, if, if you lost your job and you have under $500 in the bank and you, the credit markets are tightening up and it's hard to get to a grocery store, like think about the level of stress. You know, hopefully we as a, a society can come together to help many of these people. But like, would you rather be in that position or would you rather have followed the tenets of financial independence and have $10,000 in the bank? I definitely would rather have the money in the bank. So Brad Barrett, whether we're talking about board games or financial independence, clearly playing the long game is what it's all about. That's episode 93 with William McVeigh, Sun Wu Lee, and Cindy Sai. Brad, thanks for being on the show. You can check him out as well as Jonathan Mendonza at the Choose FI podcast, one of my favorites. Thanks for being on. Yeah, this was a blast, Doc. Thank you. So if you want to fly out to Calgary and come, you know, you're more than welcome. <laughs> that could be fun. It's going to be, it'll be nice and warm up there. Right? Yeah, very so warm. warm. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you guys are going to start your journey towards another soon, right? That's yes, the plan. that's the plan. Some point yeah. this year, we're going to start trying. We find it, We finally got to sleep through the night. And now we're like, let's just mess yeah, it all let's up. Let's just again. ruin it. You know, <laughs> yeah. once you have one, you've already given up on life. So two yeah. is like, I've, I've got a 12 and a 15 year old. So yeah, once you have the second, it's like, <laughs> you've already given up on all that stuff anyways. Well, they're, more sleep. Dur- they're more durable than you think too, right? Thank you. Yeah. So, Travis, if you go, you, you've got to give, you know, what's up next, some credit on the big stage for getting all three of you <laughs> <Yeah>. together. <so. laughs> no, that's, that'd be awesome. Yeah, that'd, well, be, that'd be amazing. Thank you guys for doing this. Thank you for humoring me and my questions. I know I don't always <laughs> ask the easiest or straight, most straightforward questions, but I really do want to have these deeper conversations. And you guys came out and, and talked about stuff that I think is really important. And so thank you for doing that. And thank you for being patient with me. 